Let's pray together. You are the one who was and who is and who is to come. You are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And because of that, it can be well with our souls. Lord, we pray that we would hear that today, that we can be a people of hope because of who you are. Amen. Last week, we talked about two important guideposts for reading the book of Revelation. The first was to remember the title. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's right. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And remember, we talked last week about the meaning of the word apocalypse. Usually, when we hear the word apocalypse, we think about kind of the cataclysmic end of the world. But the world, word apocalypse means an unveiling, an opening of the door, a pulling back of the curtain to be able to see what was behind it and to see what is really real. Apocalypse was good news. It's a moment when we get to see reality in a way that we could not see it before. Truth revealed. That is apocalypse. And it is the apocalypse, the revealing of Jesus. This book is about a person, about who he is as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was and who is and who is to come. The one who was in the past and who is and who will be in the future. It is the revelation, the apocalypse, the unveiling of who Jesus is for us and for our world. So, if you're going to read Revelation rightly, first remember the title, the revelation, the apocalypse, the unveiling, the revealing of who Jesus Christ is. The second guideline that we talked about is to remember that this book was written to an historical audience. It was written to men and women who were undergoing a great deal of persecution from the world around them. Many Christians at this time were being thrown to the lions. Many people had seen their brothers and sisters and their family members and their friends being persecuted, being tortured, or being killed. And so they were people who were under pressure. People under pressure to conform to the world, to uh, forget and to turn their back on Christ. They were people who were wondering whether or not they could trust the good news of the gospel. The people who were wondering whether or not this Jesus could really hold the weight of their faith. I'm convinced that the book of Revelation, before anything else, is a profoundly pastoral book. It's a book that was written to encourage faithful believers at this time by revealing to them who Jesus was and is and who will be. And as a pastoral book, it was meant to challenge them also in the ways that they were abandoning their faith. If you read the letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 through 3, that's exactly what we hear. Encouragement for the things that they were doing right, for the ways that they were following Jesus, and also challenge, conviction to them for the way that they were abandoning the faith, or the way that many of them were turning their back on Christ altogether. 
This was the primary purpose for why Jesus gave this revelation to John, to the churches, to encourage them in their trouble and in their persecution and to challenge them in their unfaithfulness and to challenge them in their temptation to leave and to follow another way. And that remains the primary purpose of this book for us. Over time, it seems to me that that has been missed by the church. Revelation has become the book that Christians believe primarily talks about the future, about the end times, and of course it does. But if you talk to most Christians today and you ask them about Revelation, they go, ah, it's that strange book at the end of the the Bible that talks about all those weird things that are going to happen at the end. I think, moreover, most Christians know that there's lots of different Christians who interpret those end times in different ways, and theologians and biblical scholars and uh, pastors have lots of different opinions about how all of this is going to end up. And I think most Christians kind of read this book and they kind of shrug their shoulders and, well, if they can't agree on this, then what chance do I have to understand what this is all about? And so it's neglected. I think many people just don't read it at all. Friends, the book of Revelation does talk about last things. And it is a difficult and challenging book to understand. And there are various timelines of the future that are proposed. And those conversations are important. But it's important to not miss the forest for the trees, so to speak. When you read this book, if you remember that the primary purpose for the first readers of the book and the primary purpose for us as we read this book is to reveal to us who Jesus is for you in your life and who Jesus will be for our world, the details of the book will begin to come clearer. If we begin opening up this book and trying to figure out a timeline for the end of history, we will never get to the main point of being blessed and encouraged by it. But if you begin reading this book by remembering that this is a revelation of Jesus to a suffering church, and that it was given to encourage and to challenge, Jesus will then be revealed to you in all of the ways that he needs to be revealed to you. Who he is for you now and who he will be for the future. And so over these three weeks, as we're coming to the end of this sermon series on the Bible and God's mission, as we talk about the new heavens and the new earth and the things that are to come at the end, there are three things that we're going to look at in the book of Revelation. And if I was going into a a longer sermon series on Revelation, we'd maybe get into some of those different timelines and some of the implications of some of those things. But there are three main things that I want to talk about these three weeks as we finish this series. Last week, we talked about the fact that the Lord is on the throne, and so we can be a people of faith. Our Lord is on the throne. We can be a people of faith. We do not need to be a people of fear. Whatever we see going on in the world, whatever we see going on in our own life, we must remember our Lord is on the throne. And so things are not only as they seem. He is in control. And he is moving the world toward his good plans and purposes for it. And so we need to be a people of faith because the world needs a witness of a people of faith, not a witness of a people of fear. The world needs a witness of a people of faith. Today we're going to see that our Lord is coming back, and so we're called to be a people of hope. And next week, our Lord is making all things new, and so we can be a people 
of love. Faith, hope, and love. These are the things that Paul calls us to in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. These theological virtues of faith and hope and love. And the truths of the book of Revelation. What is true about who Jesus was and is and who will be. Enable us and empower us to take on these theological virtues of faith, hope, and love in our own life. Our Lord is coming again. Do you believe it? This is a promise that Jesus made when he was with his disciples. All of the writers of the letters in the New Testament, Paul and Peter and John, all of them promise that Jesus is coming. The end is near. In the book of Acts, when the disciples saw Jesus ascend into heaven, an angel came and said, he is going to come back in the same way that you saw him go. And it's certainly one of the main themes of Revelation. Revelation 1-7, towards the very beginning of the book, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. The last chapter of the book of Revelation, three times Jesus himself says, I am coming soon. And three times there is a cry from the writer or from the church, Lord, come quickly. Come, Lord Jesus. The entire book ends with this cry, come Lord Jesus, our Lord is coming back. Do you believe it? There are two myths, two stories about the future that most people in the world believe in one way or another. I'm going to be talking in broad strokes here, but basically two myths about the future, and they have both secular as well as kind of Christian forms. And the first myth is the myth of progress, and that is the myth that the world is going to get better and better. Human beings, through science, through technology, we're going to improve the world to the point where we will rid ourselves of diseases and of war and of injustice. This was the myth. This isn't a new myth. This actually began at the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. People at Babel believed with their own skill and technology that they as human beings could have built a tower that reached to the heavens. And all kinds of human cultures, um, human movements have believed that we can do that very same thing. That with our own cleverness and our own wisdom and our own skill and our own technology to somehow bring heaven to earth. And there are Christians who share this myth of progress and who place their hope in it, uh, uh, who believe that by our own work and by our own efforts that we'll be able to bring the kingdom of God to earth on our own. If we just do social justice in the right way, or if we just get the right people in political office, if we could just have the right president, then we will progress and our culture will go in the right direction. In the Christian vision, there is, uh, there is a Christian version of this myth of progress where people place their hope in the strength of human beings, in our own wisdom, in our own strategies, that somehow we can bring heaven to earth in our time. So this first myth is a myth of progress, that things are going to get better and better and better and better until heaven comes to earth or whatever uh, vision of the future people give to us. On the other extreme, there is another myth about the future, And that is the myth of annihilation. 
This is the belief that the world is getting worse and worse, and that one day the world is going to be annihilated. This takes all kinds of secular forms. We hear it actually a lot in our world today, whether it be from environmentalists or from those who are uh, fearing a nuclear holocaust or those who believe that the world is getting so bad and so depraved that one day we're just going to all kill one another, uh, either in war or famine or disease. And this myth has Christian versions as well that basically says that the world is getting more and more morally corrupt and depraved, and so God is going to destroy it, and so our hope is to escape the world. For those of you who believe in an interpretation of Revelation that talks about the rapture of the church before things get too bad, that's a good interpretation of Revelation, but I want to say to you that rapture, escape, is not your hope. It's not your final hope. Escape from the world is not the ultimate Christian hope. The biblical view of the future is not never-ending progress until we get things right. And it's not annihilation. It's salvation from the outside. Salvation from the outside. When Christ returns, he will bring salvation. And it will be total and it will be complete. It will be impersonal as well as very personal. It will touch every single part of the creation, the rivers and the valleys and the streams and the lakes and the creatures of the ground and the birds of the air. It will be the healing of the nations and the political structures of our world. And it will also be very personal. It will touch your life and your heart and your sickness and your rebellion against God. It will be salvation, complete and total. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The Greek word for world in John 3.16 is cosmos. (laughs) When he comes, he does not come only to save our souls. He comes to bring salvation, shalom, wholeness, peace, beauty, fully and completely. When God made all things, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, what did he say? It is good. And he will come to restore the goodness of creation and to bring it fully and completely under his authority. And this work of salvation, I want to say to you today, and we see in the book of Revelation, requires God to extend his grace as well as his judgment. Turn to Revelation chapter 19. Our Lord is coming and he is bringing salvation. This is our hope. I'm going to read at some point during this sermon the entire chapter of Revelation 19, so do please keep it open. Revelation 19, I want to begin by hearing this, uh, reading this beautiful picture. We get, again, a glimpse into the heavenly places, and we hear about this invitation to the wedding supper of the Lamb. 
John writes, After this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! And the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne And they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, all you who fear him, both small and great. And then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the rush of roaring waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear, and fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And then the angel said to me, write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. And at this I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Do not do it. I am only a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony, testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. When our Lord comes, he is bringing salvation with him. And the salvation here in Revelation 19 is the picture of a meal a meal of the wedding supper of a lamb. It's an invitation for us to come and to enjoy an intimate meal with God, where we will enjoy his goodness and his presence. This is one of the many images of God's salvation that he brings to his people in the book of Revelation. He comes and he saves and he invites us into a meal. We who were his enemies, we who were strangers, who were far away from God, we are invited to this meal where we sit down and share fellowship with God. This is grace. But in order to bring his salvation, he also brings judgment. We don't like to talk about judgment very often, but in our heart of hearts, we want our God to be a God who judges. Because we've suffered wrong. We see others who have suffered wrong. And we do not want... We do not want the creator of all things to simply shrug his shoulders or turn his back or wipe those things under the rug. Revelation 19, Jesus comes as the warrior judge. Revelation 19, verse 11. I saw heaven standing open and those before me, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dripped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. That's an interesting army. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword 
with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. And then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. And with these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And the rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves On their flesh. A rider on a white horse. In Rome, whenever there was a victory, the general would come riding into the city on a white horse. And here John sees Jesus on a white horse, the one who was and who is and who will be the victor. And he is called faithful and true. The reason that Jesus is able to judge is because he is the faithful and the true one. At the beginning of Revelation, he is called the faithful witness. He sees all things clearly and completely. All of our judgments are only partially true at best. His judgments are complete and are always perfect. Verse 12, his eyes are flames of fire. When he sees us, he sees everything about us. He is able to see into our own hearts and to see where our hearts need to be purified. And he comes with that purifying fire as he sees our sin. And on his head, he has many crowns. He has won many victories. He is the Lord over all nations. He wears many crowns. And there is a name written on him that only he knows. In other words, no matter how much we can comprehend about who Jesus is, no matter how much the Bible tells us about his character and about who he is, there are still parts about him that we will never, ever know. He is the eternal one, the one who was and is and is to come. Verse 13, he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Whose blood? The battle hasn't been fought yet. This is his own blood. The blood is his own blood, his blood that has been spilled to win the battle on the cross. And his name, it says, is the word of God, the eternal logos. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This is the one who has won the victory for us. In verse 14, there are armies following after him, but it's a strange army, isn't it? They aren't wearing any battle gear. They are wearing white linen. Just above in verse 8, we read that fine linen is a symbol for the righteous acts of the saints. There is nothing else that we need to wear other than obedience to Jesus. The final battle, the battle of Armageddon, is actually never fought. 
in Revelation by any person. There's been some interpretations of Revelation that have advocated that the United States and Israel must build up their militaries because one day we're going to have to fight the battle of Armageddon. Friends, when the Lord returns, the only thing that the armies of the Lord are wearing are fine white linen. And it's not even going to get dirty, let alone bloody. Because verse 15 says that out of his mouth comes a sharp sword. His word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The word of God is the only weapon that is needed. On his robe, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Whenever Caesar came into the Senate, all the senators in Rome had to stand up and they had to yell as loud as they could, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The message is clear. Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not. And then 17 through 21, talk about this battle. This is very important. This battle is never fought by people. It is fought by Jesus who simply speaks his word. The one who spoke creation into existence, who brought order and beauty and goodness into the world, the one who spoke and called Abraham to go and be the father of a great nation, Israel, the one who spoke and made the storm, a stormy sea still, the one who spoke a word and caused the deaf to hear and the blind to see and the dead to be raised to life, it is the same one who will simply speak a word and bring his righteous judgment on all those who are against him. He speaks and the battle is over. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's not our battle to fight. Bringing his salvation requires him to bring his judgment because his salvation requires putting an end to all of those things that have caused sin and disease and injustice and heartache in our world. Jesus will bring his justice. When we think about this as Christians, one of the things that we must remember, often when we think about Jesus bringing his justice on his enemies, we get a little bit cocky. We win in the end. Our Lord is going to crush all of our enemies. We become triumphalistic. When we read the words of God's judgment in Revelation 19, there's only one response. And it's not to strut. It's not to gloat. It is to be humble and to repent. The response is humility and repentance. The reality of God's judgment, that it is coming, must cause us to be clear and sober-minded, to be ready and to be alert, and to repent from anything that would cause us to come under the judgment of this rider on this horse. We cannot strut or be proud. We must remember that anything that we receive is grace. God's unmerited favor toward us. Finding ourselves at the marriage supper is by invitation only. It is grace, his unmerited favor toward us. 
Our Lord is coming back, and he is bringing salvation. And so we are called to be a people of hope. Of hope. And when the biblical writers talk about hope, they have a much deeper and richer understanding of this than we do. We often think of hope as wishful thinking, as vague optimism. Ryan, will the Tigers win the World Series next year? I hope so. They're not going to win it this year, that's for sure. I hope so. It's wishful thinking. It's vague optimism about something that we're really not all that sure about in the future. Hope in the writers of the Christian scriptures is sure. It is sure and certain about the things that are to come. Brothers and sisters, I hear a lot of hopelessness in the words of my fellow brothers and sisters in America these days. And it breaks my heart. I know where it comes from. I understand the feeling when I spend just five minutes reading the newspaper. I understand where it comes from. But there's a lot of reactionary talk about the moral decay of our country and the violence that's going throughout the world. And I feel like there's collective sigh and a shaking of our heads and a feeling like Christians are becoming a people of despair. Friends, this cannot be. This cannot be. All is not lost. All has been won and will be won by Jesus. Friends, we are called to be a people of hope. And the world needs us to be a people of hope. Who are confident and sure about where God is taking this world. And to live accordingly. To orient our entire lives around it. Friends, we're called to be a people of hope because if people in our country or across the world, if they lose hope, they will follow anyone. We must be a people of hope. The world needs us, the church, those who follow Jesus, who believe that he is the one who was and who is right now and the one who is to come, that he is Lord, that he is on his throne and that he is coming back to bring salvation true and whole and complete. Lord, we say, come quickly. Come, Lord Jesus. With John and the 24 elders, we say, come, Lord Jesus. Bring your salvation into our lives. Lord, you are going to be, you are going to be the rider on the white horse who is going to come and destroy all of our enemies. Lord, you are the rider on the white horse in our lives today too. Who can come and destroy the sin that is in our heart. Can come and repair our marriage. Can come and Overcome whatever hurt and anger and frustration and disappointment that is in our life right now. You are the one who has brought salvation, is bringing salvation, and will bring salvation completely and totally. So, Lord, may we realize it and may we know it now in our lives. 
And may we be a people of hope. Amen.